Good morning, Crossridge. How y'all doing? Okay, I'll be honest, uh, the first service beat you <laughs> by like 50%, but how y'all doing? Good, thank you. I, I'm feeling a little bit better now. I, there's a, there is uh, a real sense of um, familiarity for me, uh, like Sam is mentioning. I, I've known Lee uh, for a long time. I remember the day when Lee walked into the office. We're at Willingdon Church, and you know that Lee often will communicate just through his mouth, right? Like a smirk or, you know, and, and like that. So he walked in kind of What? He goes, got a name. What? Got a name for the church. It's Crossridge. And I'm like, this is how long I've been with you guys. This is like my third time here. It's been so great to just see what God is doing in and among and through you over the years. And so, yeah, I feel a a sense of um, familiarity and friendship. I'm really, really happy uh, to be here. Look, when I was in Bible school, our professors said, hey, every good sermon has an introduction. And so as they're teaching us to preach, they'll say, you need a good introduction. I have no introduction today. I don't know if that's a pointer to how bad the message might be. I hope not. Rough crowd. I hope not. (laughs) In my defense, Sam did only... uh, said I was uh, a communicator in the first. He added the word great, the second, as he introduced me here today. So I'm feeling a little little more confident. Uh, But it's a great text. Uh, I want to just get right into it because uh, I think God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us through the Apostle Paul's pen. And there's three things that this text shows us. Shows us that we're to say the gospel again. Number two, that we're to say what the gospel is not. And number three, we're to say the gospel clearly. Today's text, we're going to see these three things. To say the gospel again, say what the gospel is not, and say the gospel clearly. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through to 22. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, But God is one. Is a law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that it could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Lord, thanks that we can just come together and to just let 
you speak to us through this text. So I just pray that wherever we're at, uh, Holy Spirit, just yeah, just talk to us. If, if it's confirmation, if it's uh, information, if it's direction, conviction, whatever you have for us, I pray that we'd be open uh, to hearing from you and receiving from you. Praise in your good, good name. Amen. All right, say the gospel again. Verse 15, the Apostle Paul starts with this, to give a human example. So what Paul is saying is, let me say what I just said, but another way. Look, what I just told you, it's a big deal, and I need you to get this. So it begs the question, well, what is it that Paul is doubling down on? What is it that he's approaching it from another direction? And I think it's actually Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is what I think Paul's doubling down on, the gospel message. And what I see right away in these first few words is that God uses repetition. It's it's God who uses repetition. Why? Why is God using repetition? Why is he going to use a human example? I think number one is because People need to hear the gospel message. I don't know how you are. Like, I, this is eh, maybe it's a little bit how I am. Have you ever been at work or at school and you're having a conversation with somebody and the Lord just kind of opens a door for you to be able to present the gospel? And you do. You kind of walk through. And you drop the gospel, you hit it, you're like, I feel good. And you kind of do the moonwalk out, you know, and just there, done. And then like a month later, you're having the same conversation with that same person. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there's an opportunity here for the gospel to be presented again. How are you wired? It's like some of us are going, oh, I don't know that I should say the gospel again to them. Like, I don't want to be that person. I don't, I don't want to be that zealot. I don't want to be pushy. And in the interest, I think, maybe of self-preservation, we just kind of think that the gospel is a one and done. I said it. We're good. Or maybe on the other side of the coin, you're that person that goes, look, no. I gave them the gospel message. We're, we're maybe a little more legalistic. I gave them the information that they needed. They can do whatever they want to do with it. I've I've given them. It's up to them now. And we don't present the gospel again. Friends, we want to say the gospel again, number one, so that people who we come in contact with will be able to meet Jesus with a, in a salvific encounter. And the gospel is never just a one and done. Throughout Scripture, you see that, that the gospel is presented to the same people multiple times. Just go through the life of Jesus. He's just hitting the, the message of life time and time again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 to 11, it says, I water Apollos plants, but it's God who gives the increase. And you realize, oh, it's okay for me to repeat the gospel. To, to say the gospel again. Why? Because people need to hear about Jesus. This is one of the reasons why we are to say the gospel again. This is why God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to us through the Apostle Paul's pen, and he's doubling down 
to give a human example. I need to say this again. Another reason why we have to say the gospel is, I, I don't know if this is new to you, we're forgetful people. I'm going to, not only are we forgetful people, we forget that we're forgetful people. And we're walking around, that's not me, that's on you. Ain't no flies on this guy, and we, it's not me. No, we're forgetful, but we even forget that we're forgetful people. We need to hear the gospel. This is kind of how my life goes. I've been married for 30 years to my lovely wife, Erin. And uh, for 30 years... This is how it plays out. Cliff, I need milk. Can you just go to the store and get milk? Yeah, babe, no problem. So I go to the store. I come back with a couple of grocery bags full. I drop them on the counter, and I'm pulling out some potato salad, some bratwurst, get some chips. She goes, where's the milk? Oh, I forgot the milk. Are you, are you kidding? Like, guys, this is pretty regular in my world. She goes, well, did you make a list? I'm like, I'm not a total moron. I don't need a list to remember one thing. She goes, well, where's the milk? We forget, but we also forget that we're forgetful people. Christians, we forget the gospel. The, the Galatians have, have forgotten the gospel. In uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 Paul writes, I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you. We are just like the Galatians. Paul's going, are you kidding me? You forgot so fast. We're forgetful people. There's an interesting phenomenon that I've been watching for a few years now, just around it's, it's people who identify as a Christian. They call themselves part of the church, Jesus' people. But there is no distinction between their lives and the lives of everyone else in society. Here's what I mean. The divorce rate in the church mirrors the divorce rate in society. You'd think that the divorce rate should be a lot smaller for Jesus' people. Well, why is the divorce rate the same? Because en masse, Christians are forgetting the gospel. We're forgetting what that means. We're forgetting how that informs us. We're, we're forgetting all of it. I've been watching Christians respond to all of the crazy stuff that's been happening in the last few years. We can't even agree on the fact that today is Sunday. We're so divided. Like, what is going on? Christians, we're forgetting the gospel. Why? Because we're forgetting the distinctives that come with being known as Jesus' people. The Galatians have forgotten that. But it actually gets worse. So back on my illustration where I've got my, all my other stuff on the counter for my grocery store trip, except the milk. And Aaron goes, no, Cliff, I, I really need to know, like... What happened? Why did you forget the milk? I'm like, well, here's what happened. I'm going through with the buggy, and I'm starting to see all these things on the shelves that I think we need. So I'm buying basically lunch. I did this for you. You should be happy with me. What happens? We double down, and we show in our forgetfulness that we're prideful. 
that were hard-hearted. And she goes, but how did you forget the milk? Well, on my way to the dairy cooler, I ran into somebody I hadn't seen for a while. We started to talk, and then I saw what time it was. And I, I knew you wanted me back home so I could do the chores around the house with you. So I came home right away. I came home for you. We are like that when we forget the gospel. When we forget, and we forget that we're forgetful, sometimes our hard, prideful, and bitter heart comes out. The amount of times I've talked to people that are living lives their way and are totally confused why God's not blessing them. I'm like, bro, God's not going to bless you in your rebellion. Stop pretending to be confused. That doesn't make sense. I know, I'm going to do things my way, and I want God to bless me the way God blesses me. This is why we need to say the gospel again. We're forgetful people. We're stubborn people. We are so forgetful. This first few words of this text is calling out to those that don't know Jesus. This text is calling out to those who are part of Jesus' church. My actual, my hope right now in this moment is that there's some of you that might be feeling a nudge. Oh, dang, that's me. That's me that's doing this. I want you to know God is being gracious to you right now in this moment. I don't want you to walk out of here going, oh, yeah, man, Cliff just kind of, you know, gave me a gut punch and again and again, and I feel like trash. That's not what I want. I want you to get the gut punch for sure, but then I also want you to know that God is being gracious to you. How do I know? Because Paul was led by God to the province of Galatia to preach Christ, and they did. It was fantastic. But then they forgot. So what did God do? God prompted Paul to write a letter to just call the people back to Christ. Friends, that's God's grace. That's God's grace. And then how does, how does Paul then approach this letter to the, Corinth, or to the Galatians? He starts in chapters 1 and 2 and says, God is letting you know that I'm a trustworthy spiritual leader. I'm an apostle. You can trust what I'm saying. Chapters 3 and 4 is the gospel. God is pastorally, lovingly, graciously leading these people back to their first love. This is God's grace. If you're feeling a nudge right now, this is God's grace nudging you, going, hey, Maybe, maybe you've forgotten the gospel because the way you're living your life is no different than everyone else in the culture who doesn't know Jesus. Here's what we tend to do. We tend to justify this going, what the what? Come on, Cliff, cut me some slack. Like, I came here to church. I knew half the songs, the lyrics. I didn't need to look. I, like, I'm doing pretty good. And we give ourselves a pass for a mediocre relationship with Jesus. And we give ourselves permission in this mediocre lifestyle. 
that we give ourselves permission in this mediocre lifestyle to actually indict God because of our own disobedience. I want you to know we don't get a pass. What does God say to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 1? Paul calls them out, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's interesting because, you know, I was kind of doing a little bit of digging around. The, the distance between Jerusalem and Galatia is about a thousand miles. Like, I don't know if you know geography, but we're up towards the Black Sea. It'd be easy for the Galatians to go, God's got to cut me some slack because I am so far away from Jesus and Jerusalem and what I read in the Gospels. I figure he'd give me a pass because I show up to church. And the text doesn't give us a pass. Come on, there's, there's a cultural gap for the, the Christians in Galatia. Like Jesus and the Jewish, like, no, we know Roman, we know uh, Greek, and we know Celtic. The, the, the archaeologists have discovered those are the predominant cultures in first century Galatia. You know, you and I give ourselves permission to be mediocre at best. We go, there's such a gap between me where I am right here, right now in this moment, and the Bible. There's a 2,000 year time gap from my life and the text here in Galatians chapter 3. There's a massive cultural gap. I have a hard time even understanding what the Bible is. So the fact that I get, you know, a couple of memes sent to me on my social media as a means for spiritual devotion, that's pretty good, right? And no, it's not. I'll tell you why. Because you're not seeing the gospel and you're forgetting the gospel. Why? Because... We already looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 3, verses 6 to 11, that it's God who does the saving. Some of these difficulties like time and culture and different things like that are, are, are physical proximities, physical conveniences, but the gospel actually goes past that. It's God who comes by His Holy Spirit and will speak to us. So God transcends time. God transcends culture. God transcends any of these natural gaps by the work that he does in the spirit. And if we think that the gospel is just a little piece of information, I fear we're forgetting the gospel. And so this is why Paul starts this part of this text with saying, I want to give a human example. Because it's really, really important. So I'm already like 15 minutes into this message. Now you know why I didn't have an intro. We've only done like the first five words. So let's just keep going. Say what the gospel is not, verses 15 through to 18. So continuing on in our text. Brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. There's a huge tension in this text, in these verses, verses 15 to 18. And the tension is between the earthly and the spiritual. Like the physical, fleshly, logical thinking of the way humans think and the way the Lord leads, the way the leading of the Spirit. There's a, there's a tension here. Starting in verse 15, but even with a man-made covenant, that man-made covenant... That's a will, like someone's last will and testament. So even with the last will and testament, no one, no, one, uh, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So once it's been done, it's locked, it's ratified, it's done. And the confidence that anyone would have that that will would be carried out is based on the laws. The will itself doesn't have any authority. It's the law backing the will. That's where the power is. That's where the authority is. But here, what we're talking, uh, what, what Paul is talking about is there is this man-made covenant. But in verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So already there's a different language. A man-made covenant and a promise. And that's where the tension is from the earthly thinking and the spiritual thinking. So what is the promise that God made to Abraham? What's Paul referring to here? In Genesis chapter 12, we meet Abram and his wife, Sarah. They are childless and they're so old that they've passed their childbearing years. So the idea of having any kind of offspring is gone. The hope, the possibility, it's a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. But then something crazy happens in Genesis chapter 12. God meets up with Abram and gives him a promise. Abram, I'm going to give you descendants. Even though you're childless and the chances of you having a child are zero, I'm going to give you descendants. And so many descendants that they outnumber the stars of the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. The most natural thing is to say, how are you going to do that? Simple. By my promise. The power and the authority is in the promise. The power and the authority, the trustworthiness of this actually coming to fruition is not based on a document or on a law. It's rather based on the person of who God is. So in Genesis chapter 12, we read, And God said to Abram, I will make you a great nation out of you. I will increase your numbers. I will make you into nations. So it begs the question, what could Abram ever do to bring about the promise? Answer, nothing. It's up to God to perform the promise, to fulfill the promise. Abram couldn't and shouldn't have done anything. And scripture actually shows that he tried. He tried to get in and he tried to bring about God's promise by finding other ways for him to have offspring. 
And we look back on that and scripture says that was rebellion. And you and I, we love to help God carry out his promise. We love to help, Lord, here's how I think this has to happen. And what is the gospel is not? The gospel is not you. The gospel is not me. You and I do not do anything to bring about this wonderful work of God. And I, we want to. Oh man, we are so, we prefer to somehow add. We sit there and we go, yeah, I'm savable. I'm redeemable. But that other guy, no way. But that person's done. They deserve to burn in hell, but not me. I'm okay. And we somehow give ourselves reason to think that we deserve, that we've done something to deserve a promise of God. And here, what we're seeing in this text is there is nothing that Abram can ever do to become a, 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 a participant of this promise. He's only a recipient. And here's what's so beautiful. So you have these two people, Abram and Sarah, childless. And what does God do? God miraculously creates a people out of nothing. He creates a people out of nothing and calls him his own. I'm going to create you out of nothing, and I'm going to make you my people. I will be your God. You will be my people, and I'll dwell among you. And the bloodline that unites these people is Abram's bloodline. And what Paul's talking about here is that promise that God made to Abram happened 430 years before Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy was written. God ratified his promise before the law was ever even written. And Abram was promised to be a father, uh, to be a nation. But it's interesting what God said here in Genesis 12. I will make a great nation out of you. I will increase your numbers. I will make you into nations. So why would God make this promise to Abraham whose name, his name changed from Abram to Abraham to mean the father of many nations. Why did it change from nation to nations? Because what, Ab- this, what, what Paul is talking about here, this promise to Abraham was only a pointer to the true fulfillment of the promise. Because God did it again. God again created a people miraculously out of nothing. Jesus came into this earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross in our place for our sins, and rose from the dead. And remember what, it's, it's this gospel message that, we, that Paul is, is doubling down on. I need you to remember this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And what is being made available is anybody who puts their faith in Jesus is now part of this new group of people. God called people out of darkness into his light through this work of Jesus. And this now is the the bloodline that 
that unites us now is not the bloodline of one person, but the blood of Jesus. That's why Paul says, it doesn't matter what your physical you know, barriers are, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, none of that matters. And Paul is talking to the Galatians and going, this gospel message, it's not you. You can't bring it about. And you know how that would have landed for the Galatians, given that they've forgotten the gospel, given that they've been bewitched. Chapter 3, verse 1. That's, that's probably going to hit them pretty hard. It's, it's going to sound too good to be true for them. The Galatians are going, no, I, 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 I'm having a hard time. I'm having a hard time believing that the gospel is that good. It's too good to be true. No, the gospel is good and it is true. It's both. And you bring nothing to the table. It is all a work of God. You need to receive the gospel the same way Abraham received the promise, by just receiving it. You're not the participants or the architect. You are just the recipient of the promise. That is what Paul is talking about here. And this is the tension. Because we sure like to get involved and to help the Lord out. We somehow think the level of spirituality is somehow based on our own merit, our own morality, our own personality, our, however good we might be. No, the gospel is not you. And the last thing that we see here then is, then what? Verse 19 to 22 starts with, say the gospel clearly. Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So Paul is going, why then the law? What, what, what good is the law? And what is fantastic about the law, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, is it actually explains the heart of God, explains the state of humanity. Genesis Chapter 1 and 2 talk about God and the heart of God being a creating God and being a loving God. And he created Adam and Eve and put them in paradise in the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve had the perfect marriage. They had perfect bodies. Killer hair. Their teeth were straight and white. It was perfect. Their relationship with God was on point. And we see the heart of God for humanity just in that. And then the law also goes on to tell us that sin entered into the world. And in that, it entered into humanity and everybody born after Adam and Eve are born into sin. If you're sitting here and you're wondering why the world is the way that it is, it's because of sin. And we live in a sin-cursed earth. And you'd think then that people would go, oh man, this is terrible. I want what God has. But the Bible tells us, uh, you know, in the following chapters of Genesis, that sin only increased all the more. But what does God do? 
God shows through the Noahic covenant that there's grace, that there's forgiveness in and amongst all of the rebellion, in amongst all of the sin, in amongst all of the forgetfulness. This is what the gospel, or this is what the Old Testament, what the law is showing to us. And this is what God is showing to the Galatians through Paul's pen. This is the purpose of the law. Because if without the law, you're going to forget everything and you're going to think you're way better than you really are and you're not going to see God's grace in the moment and seeing the grace that's afforded to you. You're going to think it's you and it's not. Verse 20. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that it could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And God in his grace is reminding the Galatians and reminding you and me in this moment that the gospel is central. But I want to ask you something. When I'm talking about the gospel, what, what are you thinking? Don't actually tell me it's rhetorical. Like, what, what are you thinking? Because it's easy for us to think that the gospel is this exchange. Like Paul is talking about how Christ became a curse. He's, he's also said it in 2 Corinthians uh, that he who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God which is called the great exchange. I give you my sin and I get your righteousness. Which, yeah, absolutely, that's the gospel. But if that's all that you think the gospel is, you're stopping short. If that's all you think the gospel is, whenever you, everything you've heard up to this point, you haven't been listening because you're like, blah, 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 I know, I know, I know. This is part of the gap that Christians have. That they're living their lives with no distinctives of everyone else in culture. Their, their poor quality of life, their, their marriages, their joy, their contentment, and their peace is as bad. Substance abuse, character defects, you know, drugs of choice are as rampant in the church as it is in our culture. Why? Because Christians are forgetting the gospel. They think it's just this exchange. Yeah, 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 my sin, your righteousness, great. No. You're missing a really big part of the gospel. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus came that we would have life. The, the, the Greek word there for life is not bios, like, you know, blood pumping, you know, veins and, you know, killer white teeth. That, we're not talking the physical life, but rather in the Greek, the word is zoe. So we can read it that I have come, this is Jesus, that you might have zoe and have it, the zoe, abundantly. So what is zoe? Because this is where I think Christians are stopping short of the full gospel. It's more than just exchange my guilt and his righteousness. It is that, but that's step one. 
then we are, because of that exchange, we are given this life called Zoe. My simple definition of Zoe life is this. Zoe life is a God-authored quality of life that we enjoy despite current circumstances. And it's only made possible through Jesus. When I'm talking about the gospel, I'm talking about the exchange, but I'm also talking about Zoe. That you and I have this opportunity to have this God-authored quality of life that we can enjoy despite the current circumstances. You and I tend to think the quality of our life, whether good or bad, is based solely on how much money I have, my house, my health, the interest rates, the government. And if those are all of our anchor points for our quality of life, we're toast. And no wonder we've lost our distinctiveness as a people. But here Jesus says, I've come that you might have Zoe. Jesus stepped out of heaven into earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross in our place for our sin, and rose from the dead. If we believe that, if we have faith in that, the promise by faith in Jesus, what the text is saying here, what do we have? Zoe life, and we have it abundantly. Here's a biblical example of what that looks like. If you were to look uh, through the 1 Peter, the, the whole letter of 1 Peter, um, it, it starts in chapter 1 uh, to the Christians in the diaspora. And you realize that the Christians are scattered. Because of the tyrannical Roman government, their quality of life is terrible. Oppressive government, pulled out of your homeland kind of always looking over your shoulder to see if Rome's going to do something crazy like they do. It's my timer. I thought I turned it off, and I'm still going to keep going. That's why I had no intro. All of this hardship, all of these legitimate challenges... And here's what God writes to the Christians through Peter's pen in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Do you see the wording here? To Christians that have physically a terrible quality of life. That they are to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. This is an example of Zoe life. This is the gospel. That in the middle of hardship, that we can have joy. And not just joy, it's inexpressible. Can you explain that? I can't, I don't, I'm... I wish I could explain to you what I'm feeling. You're not crazy. You're not delusional. You're filled with the Spirit. I'm tired of us Christians losing our distinctiveness because of the tension with the world. Hear this call that God has given to the Galatians who have forgotten the gospel is, say the gospel again. Say it. 
And as you do, let it change your heart. If we actually let this land, it will change our disposition. For us as people, we're going to be humble. We're going to be meek. We're going to be generous. We're going to be intentional. We're going to be purposeful. It's actually a beautiful quality of life. It's that good. It's not too good to be true. It's that good. I love how Paul wraps this up, starting in verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's just like that last shot in the gut. By the way, just just so we're all clear, every single one of us in in human history, we're all indicted. We're all sinful. We're all hopeless. We actually can't bring about God's blessing or goodness on our own. So there is that inclusiveness that we're all indicted. But then why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus... Christ might be given to those who believe. We're all indicted, and we all have been given grace. Not just grace, like they're there, it'll get better, your best days are ahead of you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking grace to have Zoe life. So just as the band is going to make their way up, I just want to ask you, as you're hearing this, how is this text landing Because it begs a response. It begs a response. The response might be, I don't know Jesus the Savior. The text is calling you, the gospel calls you to put your faith in Jesus. Maybe there's some of you who you are part of Jesus' people. You were called out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And you're like, yeah, but... My life's been ho-hum at best. I've been frustrated. I've been blaming God. And to you, I want to suggest that maybe you've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten it, that part of the gospel is this Zoe life. It begs a response. And for those that might be in this room, you're like, no, Cliff, I love this text. I love being reminded of the gospel. I'm praying and believing for the Zoe life. And the fact that I have it, it's a gift. Your response is worship. Your response is prayer. Your response is to just live every day in light of that. So just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Lord, I just pray that we would have hearts soft enough to just respond, that we wouldn't be forgetful. Uh, we wouldn't be prideful or hard-hearted, but we just let the beauty of this gospel message sink in into every crack and crevice of our hardened heart. And where was a heart of stone, it would become a heart of flesh again. Holy Spirit, I just pray for those of us that are nervous, that we want that, but we think it's too good to be true. Show us that it's not too good to be true. It's true and it's that good. Show us that by your spirit. 
that we would have faith to take you at your word, to recognize that it's you who's fulfilling the promise. We are just the beneficiaries. So Lord, I pray that we'd receive all that you have for us. We pray this in your good name. Amen.